I can remember a year ago, right when the pandemic hit, is uh, the timing that that song went out. And it just felt like a gift from God to be able to sing out a blessing over your family and all of the parents and grandparents in the room. That song just hits different. It, it, it hits you. And stop laughing at me when I say relevant stuff. You are like, oh, look at him trying to be cool. It does. It, it, it calls to mind that what's happening in these moments is bigger than us just trying to pull off a church service, that there's generations at stake with what happens in the life of the church. And uh, I, I hope that's on your mind this morning. And I hope that that's what's on our heart as we step into a new season together in building. You know, I was going to get up here and be like, you know, I wanted to start my message and invite everybody into generosity, but I'm just going to be real with you. I forgot to do it earlier. Um, we, we were not supposed to show that and then be like, great, you guys already gave and we're good to go on that building. Like, no, we're still in a season of desperation and going, God, we're stepping, but we're believing that you're going to do something. So we're going to go into our bringing time right now. This is the time that we set aside for you to respond to God with generosity. You can give on Venmo, you can give online, so many different ways to give. Uh, but I hope what you're investing in here is a church that is serious about generational change. And, and not just generational change on a large scale, but generational change within families. Some of you in your marriage have broken free of things that held your parents back already. Some of you have seen in your kids who are growing up loving Jesus this freedom from what could have held them back. And I don't know if there's anything more scary as a parent than seeing your issues be passed down to the next generation, but I don't know if there's anything more rewarding than having the blood of Jesus set you free to be part of a new family tree in the family of Jesus. Man, y'all are, are in rare form today. I am so excited to preach to this crowd, and uh, I'm ready for this word to go out. I've also had a few weeks off, and so I've gotten some time to refuel and it's, it's, it's dangerous when I get time to just let God download things into my spirit. But what's also exciting about that is I don't feel like there's been a drop-off the last couple of weeks as our worship pastor, Matt Cole, and our college and community pastor, Gage Henry, have brought the word. Man, they've done so great. It's been great. You know, last Sunday I was sitting there when Gage said something, and I, I'm just in disbelief at all God was doing in a given moment. But he said something that was kind of on the periphery of his sermon that as he said it, I was like, oh, wow, that is like exactly where we want to go with this series and exactly what we need to get across. We've been in this series called Trust the Story, and it's all about finding rest in letting go of what you were never called to own. It's all about handing to God something that was never yours to take in the first place. And so God's writing this grand overarching story through humanity that reads Jesus wins, but he's also writing all the individual details of your life into that story. And it's when you and I learn to rest in the fact that it's great that God is God and you are not, not live our whole lives anxiously trying to gain a position that was never ours to grab. And so we're finding this rest in Jesus being the one who writes our story. But Gage said something last week that I was literally sitting on the front row like, I cannot believe this. I don't know if this this is fully translating to everybody in the room, but it hit me in such a cool way. He said, the purpose of the story is not to get to the ending or even to know the answers. The purpose of the story is to get to know the author. 
So the purpose of the story of your life is not just to fast forward to the ending, make sure we get to heaven, make sure you make it into the presence of God and you get to spend eternity there. That's a great part of the story, but that's not necessarily what it's all about today. And it's definitely not all about just having all of the answers in all of your given moments in life to be able to go, okay, I know what I'm supposed to do next and I know that this is true about God and I memorize this verse and I know all of this stuff. No, knowledge is great. But ultimately what you have been invited into and the reason why you have breath in your lungs today is because the author of all of creation wanted to disclose to his creation things about himself. And he actually created you to know him intimately and deeply every single day of your life. And for the past year, that truth is something that has been downloaded to me so many times over the past few decades But it's kind of freed me in a way that you can tell when I'm on stage that I'm kind of noticing something about God that I'm trying to get across to you. I talked about it this past summer. I did a message called Seek His Face, and it was about seeking the countenance of God over seeking the things that God could tell you or even things about God, but like knowing him intimately, deeply, and personally. I think that that sort of touched on the heartbeat of it. But then we started this year with a message called Why Am I Here?, where we talked about you were created for personal devotion to God. Like, think about this. How simple could your story be? God has created you to go for a lifelong walk with him. Like, he's created you to just know him intimately and deeply. And what that does for me, and what I hope that does for you, is it simplifies what can become so complicated. That yes, there's a lot of details to your story. Yes, you got a career. Yes, you got a family. Yes, you got a lot that's at stake today. But at the end of the day, the thing that defines your story the most, your ultimate purpose is walking in intimate, close communion with God. And so I hope that this message is just another layer that maybe goes even deeper than both of those because I believe trusting the story is really about making it your ambition to know the author's heart. And so the title of this message is going to be called Trusting God's Heart trusting God's heart. Now, it's often at our church where we ask you to talk to the person next to you. And I realize that that's an introvert's worst nightmare. Some of you, that ask alone is a reason why you've struggled to call this church your home. And I just want to acknowledge you. There's several reasons why we do it. Sometimes it's just to make sure that the whole service is not spent with you looking up here because that's not church. Church is community. Sometimes it's because there are people who have come here all alone and what they need more than a good sermon or a good song is they need someone to smile at them and they need someone to acknowledge them. But sometimes, and this is one of those times, sometimes what I want you to experience as you say what I'm telling you to say to the person next to you is something I want you to feel that goes directly into the tension that we're talking about in the sermon. So everyone has to participate in this. I want you, go ahead and pick out who you're going to be doing this with. You're like, oh, I got I to gotta make sure. Okay, okay. Here's what we're going to do. You're going to ask the person next to you a question, and it's a deep question, okay? It's a question that Aladdin asked Jasmine right before the magic carpet ride, okay? I want you to look at the person next to you and ask them, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Just feel that. Feel that tension. I want you to feel it. Do you trust me? Y'all, I honestly, I was going to show the scene from the new Aladdin movie where he asked, and Jasmine just dresses too scandalous, like can't get away with it in church. And I told my daughter this, I was like, there is no way you are getting, she wanted a Jasmine costume when we were at Disney World so bad. And I love it because she was like, and I was like, well, we got to get Elliot one too. She said, no, Elliot can be Snow White. She looks like Snow White. She can be Snow White. And so can we show that picture of my girls on Christmas morning? This is my girl's. I don't know how I feel about that belly being exposed. 
But that's Aniston and Elliot, and that's the reason why I didn't show it, because, you know, Jasmine, even in the cartoon, Jasmine takes things to a level that you're like, really, Disney? Um, so <laughs> we can put that picture away. But I, I thought about that scene. I thought about that scene this week. I was like, okay, he, he asked that question, do you trust me? And that's probably the deepest question you can ask somebody, because it takes you to the core of your relationship with them. Now, some of you who said that to someone you don't even know, it's not even fitting to ask someone you don't know that question. It's like, okay, I can't, I can't measure whether or not that's true about you. But some of you who know each other well, you know the answer to that question on its deepest level has to do with the proven heart and character of the person you're asking. More than it has to do with what they have or what they do or even what they've done in the past. So here's the thing. If somebody who you knew had a billion dollars came up to you and said, hey, I want to give you a million dollars. Do you trust me to do that? Your answer to the question of whether or not you trust them to do that may be attached to the fact that you know they have a lot of money, but whether you really believe they're going to do that or not has more to do with what you know or don't know about their character or their heart. So if this person is someone you don't even know, you're like, listen, I get it, you have a lot of money, but I don't believe for a second you're gonna give me a million dollars. But if you know that over time, this person has a track record of randomly being generous to people they run into, then you're going, I know, this is something that you do a lot. This is a part of who you are. Then I trust you to carry it out to completion. And here's the thing about God. When Christians say you need to trust God, we could be saying a thousand different things. And that's one of those things that we have to clarify what we mean when we say it. Oh, just trust God. And the anxiety will go away. Just trust God. And it's like, what do you mean when you say that? What does that actually look like? Because you can trust God for things that are true about him and miss out on the nature of what God calls us to do when he says, trust me. Here's what I mean. Our God is omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's all powerful. He's all knowing and he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And I think these attributes about our God that we know to be true from the scriptures become the things that we attach our trust to. And so we incorrectly read into the story that because God is all powerful, he will blank in relationship to my need. And we attach our trust to things about God instead of what I believe we're called to do, which is attach our trust to the heart of God more than anything. Yes, God is all-powerful, and yes, he's all-knowing, and yes, he is ever-present in every single situation, but when you attach your trust to assumed outcomes about things that are true about God, instead of making it your ultimate anchor to go, I trust in the nature of who God reveals himself to be, you might be setting yourself up for disappointment, because our God is a God of promises, And we always talk about trusting in the promises of God more than the plans of man. But I want to take, I've said that so many times, I want to take it even deeper. You don't just need to trust in the promises of God. You need to trust in the heartbeat of God that those promises flow from. It's a level deeper. It's, God, I trust you to be who your word says you are and who I've come to know you to be. Because watch this, our capacity to trust God is directly connected to knowing him intimately. Our capacity to trust God is directly connected to knowing him intimately and personally. And my concern for us is that we talk about trusting the story God's writing and we talk about trusting God over and over and over again. But here's the thing. It's a tragedy that it's rare for people in this room to have intimate moments of closeness with God on a weekly or daily basis. 
When I talk about intimacy with God, I'm talking about moments that are not about answers or directions or next steps. I'm talking about moments where you get close to the heart of God and you're going, I have a relationship with the God of the universe and he just showed me something about himself or I just revealed something about myself and we're like walking together in friendship and in close communion and it's changing me from the inside out. Those moments are too few and far in between for some of us. And I would say this, your capacity to trust God is going to have more to do with whether or not you know him closely and intimately than it does with whether or not you know how to get the right answers at the right time. And so what we're going to do today, here's my vision for today. I want us to attach our trust in the story God's writing in our lives to God's heart more than anything else. And I want to go to a moment in the scriptures where God literally out loud calls out his nature. It's one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible, and it actually picks up right where Gage left off last week. If you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up. Don't even have time for a Bible drill. We're going straight there. Hold it up. Come on. Exodus chapter 33. Turn with me to the second book in your Bible. Exodus chapter 33. This is so good. Okay. I'm also sitting over there last Sunday listening to Gage, and I cannot believe this because Gage tells the story of Moses and ends his sermon where it says, Moses talked to God face to face the way a man talks to his friend. And I was just so blown away by that because I knew what I was going to be talking about this week and it picks up right where that verse ends. You don't have to believe that, but I'd already decided that ahead of time because I wanted to tell you guys, listen, it's a tragedy that we don't have more intimate moments with God because Moses had to go into this tent called the tent of meeting and have these personal meetings with God on behalf of the people of God. But because of the blood of Jesus, you and I get a new access to God where we can go on our knees at any time into the presence of God because his blood gives us confidence there. And so we got to know God intimately. We got to know him deeply. And it's so cool. I don't have time to go into the full recap of the story of Moses his life. But at this point in the story, you can go back to Gage's message for that. At this point, Israel has actually been rescued from slavery in Egypt and they have gone out. The sea has parted. They've experienced miracles and now they're waiting to go into the promised land. And it's at this point where Moses receives the 10 commandments. He comes down from the mountain and the people of God are worshiping a golden calf and Moses gets really upset. And there has to be a long period of figuring out, okay, we got to weed out the people who are worshiping false gods. And I could go into full detail about that, but I'm not going to. This is the moment where God gives Israel a second chance to receive the Ten Commandments and a second chance to be faithful to go into the promised land. But he says, listen, I'm not going with you. You've decided to worship other gods, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm still going to bless you because I made a promise to you. God's faithful to keep his promise even when we are unfaithful. And he goes, listen, I'm going to make sure you get the land, but I'm going to send my angel, and my angel will help you wipe out the people that you need to wipe out on the way into the promised land. There's a long story for why the people of God had to do that but I'm not going with you. And then Moses has this conversation with God in Exodus chapter 33, verse 12. If you're there, say I'm there. Watch this. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you. How do I know God? Learn his ways. Teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this, that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? 
What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Here's what I want you to see. Prayer moves the heart of God. And more than prayer is a list of burdens that you're bringing before God, prayer is a conversation with a friend who's also God. And there's a, there's a bend and a give and take to this conversation that people like me who believe very strongly in the sovereignty of God struggle with. We struggle with a God who would, on the one hand, say, hey, I'm going to send my angel with you, but I'm not going with you. My presence, I'm not going with you. You guys take the land and you go without me. And then Moses comes before him and goes, no, 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 God, if your presence doesn't go with us, we don't want to go anywhere. God, how will they know? How will we even be distinguished from all the peoples on the earth? You got to go with us. And God not only reneges on him, what he previously said, the angel's going to go with you. My presence will go with you. Oh yeah. And I'll give you rest. So I'm not only going to go back on what I previously said. It's not that God cancels out his word. It's that our God is a God of what biblically I would call sovereign contingency, which means he knows the whole plan. He's the author of the whole plan and he holds the whole plan in his hands, but he actually gives a level of freedom to his creation where our prayers matter where your prayers actually move the heart of God. And Moses is praying before God, and God decides, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to turn from what I previously said, and now my presence is going to go with you. Your prayers matter. Even though God is in total control of the universe, and your story is set in stone in eternity, we are living in real time. And it's when, you know when you and I get in trouble? It's when you and I start thinking about those things, those things that are bigger than our minds, that we end up outside of God's ways because we go, oh, well, if God does all, listen, God called you to be a creation, living in submission to who he is. And so I want you to see that. There's been to this conversation, but you would think the conversation is over based on what we've just read. Moses is going, we need your presence. We need you to go with us. We don't want an angel as awesome as an angel might be. We need you. And God goes, I'll go and I'll give you rest. But Moses is not done making requests. In fact, the next verse is the most famous prayer request in the entire Bible. Look at verse 18. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. Show me your glory. We could spend years on this verse alone. There's no way that in one sermon I could give you the level of scholarly opinion and input that needs to be given on this verse. But I'll give you my own based on what I've read in the scriptures for what this means because this is a very confusing statement. The word glory in Hebrew simply means weight. So what Moses is saying is, God, demonstrate in front of me the weight of who you are. But because of what we know is true about Moses beforehand, I think we can figure out what exactly he's asking God here. I don't think he's asking God to do something miraculous. As much as many of us want to see that in real time, Moses has gotten plenty of that. Read about the plagues. Read about the sea parting. Read about all these different... I don't think he's going, God, okay, your presence is going to go with us. Now show me something cool before I go to bed. I don't think that's what he's saying. When he says, show me your glory, he's going, God, I want you to disclose part of who you are personally that you haven't disclosed before. Show me the, the weight of your personhood and let me know you in a way that you haven't been made known before. And the reason why I think that's what he's asking is because that's how God answers. Look at the next verse. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. 
and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cause my goodness to pass in front of you. There's a reason why that word is goodness. It's because it's one of the first words that comes to mind about the personality of God. I'm going to cause how good I am to pass in front of you. It's another way of saying, I'm going to walk by you. And I'm just that good. I'm going to proclaim my name. We're going to talk more about that. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God can't say his name without mentioning mercy and compassion. They're that central to who he is. And then he says, but you can't see my face. Why does he say that? Because Moses just keeps pressing and asking for more. And God will say yes to whatever Moses' requests are in this moment, except the things that he might request that would hurt him. Here's what I want you to see about this prayer. God is saying yes to everything except what might hurt Moses. And I would argue he does the same thing with you when you pray. He's like, I'm an open book. I am ready. But I am not ready to pour out something on you that will destroy you. I'm not ready to show you so much of myself that it would completely obliterate you. So I'm going to put you in a rock. And as I walk by, I'm going to declare my name. And I'll cover you as I walk by. Now, God's not a human being. So he's kind of taking a form that would be understandable to Moses. And he goes, I'll cover you. And then you'll see my backside and you'll experience my glory. Now, the moment that this happens, God is going to walk by and he's going to say out loud the nature of who he is. And what we are about to read is the most quoted portion of scripture by scripture. I'm going to say that again. What we are about to read is the most quoted portion of scripture by scripture. So what does the Bible quote the most? Exodus 34. And it's what God says about himself. Go down to verse five. Exodus chapter 34, verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. God is walking by a man and going, this is what I am like. And he starts with a name. Now this is where speaking English is just awful for Bible reading. The Lord is not a good enough translation of what God is saying there. So when he says the Lord, the Lord at the beginning, we say Lord as if it's a title, but it's because we don't have a word for what God is saying in Hebrew. God has chosen a name and it's the name Yahweh. Gage talked a little bit about it last week, but in Hebrew, they don't use vowels. It's an ancient language that is very, very, very difficult to understand. So it's basically the letters Y-H-W-H. And the Hebrews translate it to mean Yahweh, but we really don't even know exactly how it is said. But when God says Yahweh, he's not making up a new name. He's using his name in a different tense. What's his name? Remember his name earlier in Exodus? I am. 
When, I, when Moses said, tell me your name. If you're going to send me to Pharaoh, I got to tell them who sent me. I am has sent you. Essentially, what God says about his name to Moses is, I will be who I will be. I have never changed. I won't ever change. I'm just the God who is. Yahweh is a way for people to say in third person, I am. Because it's a little bit strange for us to say, God is, I am. But in Hebrew, it's not strange to say, he is. And he is, is translated Yahweh. So essentially, God says, Yahweh, Yahweh. Why does he say it twice? To emphasize, I have a name. Now, this, is, this is going to rock some of you. But when God distinguishes himself in the book of Exodus, God has to do that because there are so many other gods. And when we think of other gods, we mostly think of idols and totem poles that represent things that are fake. But you need to understand, in a biblical worldview, other little g gods are not the God, but they are nonetheless real spiritual beings. And whether you want to call them demons or principalities or powers of darkness, our God is not the only spiritual being who exists. And we believe there is no other God, big G, but our God. I'm not saying there are many gods. No, there's one true God. But there are other powers at play here. And what God has to do is he has to sort of distinguish himself from the other powers that are known at the time. And all that's known at the time is gods who mess with humanity based on the day that they are having. You have gods who are selfish. You can read about this in mythology. You have gods who mandate sacrifices of children. You have gods who all over the place through the scriptures cause so much destruction. And when the God of the Bible decides to reveal himself, he says, this is my name and this is my nature. So the things that God says after his name are not attributes about him. They are the very essence of his personality. When, this isn't that normal to talk about now. I still believe it's normal, and I think you should be very careful the names you put on your kids, but this is not as normal now. Your name in the Bible is your nature. It's your essence. It has a lot to do with who you become. And so when God, God has to tell you, what does Yahweh mean? What makes you you? You know the thing about the people around you that they would look at you and go, that's what makes them them. That's what makes them an individual. God says, it's these things that make me me. And we'll put them on the screen. If you want to capture who is Yahweh, it's this. Now, as you're reading this list, I want you to keep this in mind. God doesn't have to be anyone. He doesn't have to be a certain way. When you're God, you get to be whoever you are. And that's why his name is I am. I just am who I am. So as you're reading this, I think sometimes we read the Bible and we assume God has to have a certain level of goodness and greatness. This is just who the God who created you happens to be. And he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. There's a reason why that one's first. Compassion is his emotion toward you and graciousness is his action toward you. What does it mean for God to be first and foremost compassionate? It means he has the ability to feel for you in a way that makes his heart bent toward you. You know, every time you've ever prayed and you have been held back by the sins that are, that are kind of capturing your heart and capturing your mind, you know, every time you've ever gone to God, his heart for you has never been anything but compassion. The Bible says he knows our frame that we are but dust. 
Do you know your sin doesn't move God's heart away from you? It actually draws his heart toward you because he knows how much you're helpless if he doesn't get involved. The compassionate and gracious God. And here's the one, it's hard for me to read it, and I'm sorry I choked up while I was just reading it, but every time I read these three words, I'm like, wow, slow to anger. That, you'll read that in Jonah, you'll read that in Joel. You know, guys, you know in Jonah, Jonah says the reason why I ran away from God is not because I was scared to go preach to Nineveh. Remember the guy who got swallowed by the fish? Um, Jonah comes back in chapter four and he says, I didn't go to Nineveh, not because I was scared. I didn't go there because I knew that you were slow to anger and compassionate. I knew you were gonna forgive them and I didn't want you to forgive them. That's what was going on in his heart. Joel chapter two, we did a series about that called Even Now, where Joel quotes this. And says, even now, declares the Lord, my compassions are there for you. I'm slow to anger. Doesn't mean that he doesn't have anger. It just means it takes a lot to rile up the anger of God. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands. That's a word, love, that it's like covenantal love. It's not love that feels good in a moment because you have infatuation with someone. It's a love that endures across every season maintaining love to thousands. Look at number five. I love number five. Forgiving, not has forgiven or will forgive, but always in a state of present forgiveness. Forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So sin is just a word that means to miss the mark. I love that wickedness and rebellion are added in. Whether you did the wrong thing, whether you ran from God, whether the wrong thing happened to you, or whether you just missed the mark, either way, my posture toward you is forgiving. And then number six is where we get all messed up. Because we're like, oh, we seem to be going, oh, wait, what? <laughs> punishes the guilty and punishes the children. We're going to deal with that one. But what you need to know is that our God, five out of six, is a God of mercy. But that mercy does not negate his justice. He will hold the guilty accountable. And he will be a God. And, and, and I'm going to talk about this at the very end of the sermon. Who will punish what's called generational sin. Now, why am I showing you all of this? Because if we're going to trust God's heart, you need to know who he is. This is who God is at the center of his heart. And if you read this and go, yeah, 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 that's the God of the Old Testament. It's like God the Father talking. Jesus shows up. No, y'all need to understand this. When John chapter 1 says that Jesus is the word in flesh, it means Jesus is all of these things in a human body. Did you know 2,000 years ago when people said Jesus is Lord, they weren't saying Jesus is the Lord and Savior of my life. I prayed the prayer. I dedicated my life to him. No, they were saying Jesus is Yahweh. And that's what was so controversial about it. Because Yahweh was not someone who you could touch with human hands. And that's why John wrote, because of Exodus chapter 34, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Do you know the words grace and truth are just a replay of those two words, love and faithfulness? Can you tell I've been sitting on this for a while? God has revealed himself in Jesus as this is, okay, this is a human form of who I've been from all eternity past and who I will be for eternity future. Now, here's what I'm arguing. If you're going to trust God's heart, God wants to take these things from being a list that you read in the Bible to being a personal experience that you have with him on a daily basis. God wants these to be more than attributes that you come to understand and go, I memorized it. That's what God is like. No, God wants you to know his heart. And as you learn the heart of God through whatever circumstance or season you go through in your story, it's these things that transform you from the inside out 
And it's these things that draw you closer and closer to the heart of God the more that you come to him. So Moses, in a moment, is coming to God in his situation. What's his situation? Leading the people of God into the promised land. He is desperate in that moment for God to show him something. But what he wants more than anything to get him through what he's about to go through is he wants to know God intimately and personally. I want to argue today, you got to shift your pursuit from being, I trust God because I I need the answers or because I need this outcome or because I need his power to take care of these things. All of those things are great. But at the bottom of that, God, what I need more than anything is to know your glory. And what I need more than anything is to know you intimately. So here's, here's this message in one line. If you need like something that takes all these complicated truths and make it uh, practical and applicable for your life, here it is. Intimacy with God is our guide through mystery in life. Intimacy with God is our guide through mystery in life. So Moses is in that situation where he needs an anchor. He needs something to hold on to, to know he's going to be able to navigate what's moving forward in his life. But what he needs more than he needs God to promise him, my presence will go with you. I'm in. Moses like, I need more than that right now. I just need to know you. I want you to make intimacy with God your main pursuit through every mystery you experience in life. And I would add this. Intimacy with God is never more available than when you're going through a season of mystery. When mystery surrounds you and you're going, God, I don't understand. And I don't get it. And I... I don't even think there's an explanation you could give me right now that could make me feel better about what I'm going through. God's invitation in that moment isn't, hey, just wait till you get to heaven and I'll explain everything to you and grin and bear it until you make it. God's invitation is come close. I want to show you my heart. And I want to show you that in this world where all these other powers of darkness are at work, the God of all gods, the great I am, is going to redeem and renew and restore all things to their original purpose. And he is going to win this story. But until he does all the brokenness and all the darkness of what you and I experience, it's an invitation to draw near to his heart. And so I know from my life personally, I've never experienced more closeness with God than when I've been in seasons where I didn't know what was coming next. Like I can talk, it's just so crazy for me, y'all, to be seven years into this journey as a church and, and be thinking back to intimacy with God. Me, me and one of our elders were going to close on our loan this week and just thinking about, wow, our church is in such a different season. But as I was driving there, I drove past the apartment complex that I moved to when I moved here. And I can remember feeling so alone a couple of weeks into moving here and being on my knees in that apartment. And I, like, I experienced in that little apartment a closeness with God that is greater than anything I've experienced on a mountaintop with circumstances that I would have wanted. And part of me, this is what's crazy about walking with Jesus. Part of me wants to be there with him instead of on the mountaintop with his gifts. Because he's that amazing. It doesn't mean that you want to go through pain. It doesn't mean that you want life to be difficult. No, we're human beings. But it means there's a part of him that you come to experience as tender and available to you in spaces where you're going, God, if I don't get more of you, I don't know if I'm going to make it through another day. And there's an availability that his, his spirit has to you. And I'm just saying, when you're going through the mystery, when you don't know what you're supposed to major in, when you don't know who you're supposed to marry, when you don't know if your kids are ever going to get it, when you don't know what's next in your career, don't make it your chief ambition to get those answers. Make it your chief ambition to trust the heart of God. God, I I trust that those things are true about you. And in the end, 
This story is going to prove you to be that because that's all you ever are. But until then, I trust your heart. And, and watch this, I pursue your heart. But it's, it's impossible to pursue the heart of God without the elements that are present in Exodus 33 and 34. And Moses has two things with God that a lot of us do not have either or maybe at best only have one. Moses has a perfect combination of reverent fear and relational friendship. I'm gonna say it again. Moses has the perfect combination of reverent fear and relational friendship with God. And too many times, Christians choose one or the other. How do I know which one I am? Reverent fear is the Christian who is so freaked out by the presence of God and so freaked out by disobeying God that they don't even really take steps in their relationship with God because they just want to sit back and obey rules and go, I just don't want to miss it and I just don't want to make him mad and I don't really talk to him much and I don't really think much about it. That's what reverent fear is. And then relational friendship, we don't, we don't got to go to the point, well, you can write him down, but I'm not, this is not what I was telling you guys back there before. Um, <laughs> relational friendship is the person in the room who just wants to be a friend of God without having to know the ways of God. It's like, Jesus came to make God available. So I just hang out with God. I just have my mornings with God. God doesn't really care what I did last night. He doesn't really care what I'm going to do next week. But until then, we're just friends. And what God wants us to figure out is he wants to, to get in the balance of that and go, no, what if, what if being reverent before God and fearfully trembling at his presence and knowing that he's your best friend and his heart is bent toward you, what if the combination of those two things are what it takes to trust the heart of God? And what if, what if we put them together the way that Moses puts them together? So that's what we're going to do. Those are my two points. They already put them up on the screen, which is great. Number one is reverent fear. And, and I want to say this about the word fear. People love to explain away things that the Bible blatantly says. So my whole life I've heard, well, when God says fear the Lord, it doesn't mean like be afraid, like you're afraid of someone who could scare you. It means like tremble. It means like uh, just be, be in a position of holiness. Guys, listen, it's the word of God. The word of God is very careful with word choices. It says fear. Like the fear of the Lord is going, oh, you are terrifyingly good. And don't skip the word terrified. Like when God shows up, I love this. All he does is say, my goodness will pass in front of you and I'll proclaim my name. His name is all these gentle things about who he is. But yet you got a guy who can't look at him in the eyes because he'll be obliterated if he does. You got a guy who, his knee-jerk response, I didn't even read the end of the story. In verse 8 is this. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. That's what you do when God shows up. So reverent fear is our capacity to be in the presence of God and know, hey, he's God and we're in a relationship. But like when he comes into the room, you usually don't walk away just going, that was nice. You usually walk away going, I'm on holy ground. And I tremble at the mention of his name. Look at Psalm chapter 25, verse 14. It says, the Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes known his covenant to them. Here's the combination. When a human being fears God, God wants to be their friend. The, who do you confide in? Confiding in someone, it's, it's another word is confidant. Who are the people in your life who you're like, everything goes wrong, you call them. The people who you disclose parts of you that you don't disclose to everybody else. God says, I do that to worshipers who tremble at my presence. I don't do that to people who walk into my presence like, oh, Jesus died for me, I'm good, it's whatever. I, I do that for people 
who are aware of how reverent they need to be when they come into my presence and aware of how fearfully and wonderfully I have created them. But watch this, the, the, the combination of the two, it's like, yes, I'm that terrifying and yes, I'm that holy and yes, my presence is that breathtaking. But at the same time, I just wanna be close to you. So let's go to number two, relational friendship. God says, all of that's true about me, and I want to know you. I want to talk to you the way someone talks to a friend. I want you to tremble in the presence of God, but I also want you confident. And true confidence is the byproduct of belonging. When you know you belong to God, you are confident. You are the most confident version of yourself in spaces where you know you belong the most. Where at? The living room of your house the people who you love the most. I want the place that you are the most confident to be the presence of God at the same time I want us to fear and tremble at the presence of God. And how do you do that? Hebrews says, we enter into the most holy place with confidence by the blood of the lamb. It's the blood of Jesus. So here's, here's how you go from being reverent and fearful in the presence of God to relational friendship. Pray the blood of Jesus. God, I have no business being here right now, but I get to draw near to you because your blood has been shed on my behalf. So by the blood of Jesus, I come before you. And then what do you do when you come into the presence of God? You have a conversation. He talks to you and you talk to him. And watch this. There's give and take to that conversation and there's bend to that conversation, but there's a God on the other end of the prayer who's already declared that it is his nature to have his heart bent toward you in compassion. So you don't have to spend the whole prayer going, God, if you could just maybe lean a little more toward me here, if you could just maybe turn your heart and your ear my way. He's like, it's already there. And I didn't have to get it there. When I created you, it was that way because it's who I am. And then what do I, what do I pray if I trust the heart of God? I, I would argue if the first five are all taken care of by God's nature and God's character, pray for number six. He punishes the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Why does God do that? Why would he have all this goodness and this mercy, but still hold children responsible for the sin of their parents? And if you're like, I don't know about that whole sin of parents being passed down. Some of it's literal. Like if kids have parents who are criminals, guess what they inherit? A life of consequence that they didn't ask for. And some of it's spiritual. It's the same reason why your main spiritual battles in your life will be the battles that your parents did not take on and win. It just will. You didn't ask for that. I didn't ask for that. It's a part of God's nature. Why does he do that? Because God, pay, pay so close attention to this. God is so serious about renewing and restoring your family that he literally won't leave your family alone until every sin is eradicated. He's literally going, I'll go to them and I'll go to them and I'll go to them. Not to be mean, not to spite them, but because I'm so serious about seeing this family redeemed. So when you come before God and you plead the blood of Jesus, what does blood do? Blood buys you access into a family. So when I'm in the presence of God and I got to trust God's heart, you know the main thing I'm asking? I'm going, God, let this stuff end with me. Let what I'm carrying be submitted and surrendered to find freedom in your blood. And I'm telling you, you're praying to a God who cannot wait to answer that prayer. And so I want to invite every person in this room to experience a new level of intimacy with God. But I want you to go in there going, God, I already know who you are. You've told me. 
But now, show me your glory. I want to experience this for myself. I hope we get reverent fear and relational friendship all day in this room. But I believe right now we have an opportunity to cultivate that environment. You can put your notes away. You can stand up all over this room. If you need to sit for this moment, I totally get that. But we're going to cultivate an environment that has both so that we can experience the heart of God together. Would you bow your head all over this space? Would you bow your head if you're joining us online? Let's all pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that these words being shared from a stage right now would not be disconnected from the power of your spirit. I pray for every distraction, every every thought being sent to these individuals from the enemy would be obliterated by the revelation of who you are, Jesus. I thank you, God, that you are compassionate. I thank you that you are gracious. I thank you that you are slow to anger. But I pray right now that as we sing some big truths about who you are, that you would make yourself known to people who maybe have never met you before. Would you carry a new weight of your presence to people who have said their whole life they were a Christian, but they don't experience intimacy with you? I pray that they wouldn't just sense a weight in these moments, but that your presence, your glory would rest on them. Jesus, I thank you by your blood that we have new access to you. I pray that you, the great I am, would be the object of all of our praise and all of our worship and that we would make the object of our trust what's true about your heart. God, when we don't understand your hand, we trust your heart. Help us to trust you now. We sing to you. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen.